Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan. Today we're going to be talking about the biblical foundations of the papacy. Welcome back again, everybody. I'm extremely excited about today's topic on the topic of the papacy. So in previous episodes, um, particularly in episode four titled Where in the Bible, there was a lot of scripture verses in there that we pulled out and looked at that referred to tradition that is outside of the Bible as well. So we know that revelation both comes from sacred, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And so that tradition, those uh, verses that pointed to a tradition also points to an authoritative authoritative church. And so just to give us a refresher, um, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, they were not scripture alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 12, it says, If there arises a matter too hard for you in judgment, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God shall choose, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire. And they shall show you the sentence of judgment, and you shall do according to the sentences. When, which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show you, and you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you, and according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach you, and according to the judgment which they shall tell you. So within that Deuteronomy text, you can see that there are that they're seeking a judgment from the Levitical priest and or the civil judge, or the two of them together, which is really representing canon law and civil law. So you can see here that Deuteronomy, the last and greatest statement of the Mosaic Covenant. So in the Torah, made up of five books, this is the last book of the five. And this did not consider itself a self-interpreting document. It presumed a living, identifiable community with living, identifiable priests, judges, who could authoritatively adjudicate for the whole people. So each individual Israelite was not tasked with the responsibility of interpreting divine law on his own. And God, these are things that were instituted by God, and he said that he would perpetually have, right? So these things would be all fulfilled in the new covenant, right? So these things, as Jesus says, he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He perfects what the Lord has always been, what the Lord has been revealing to his people and fulfills in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So, and then uh, when we move to the New Testament, you see things like this. For, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says, The church of the living God is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And what is the church uh, made up of? Well, you see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you see right there that it's, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And what does it say back in First Timothy 3.15? That the church of the living God is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And that's why when we talk about the four marks of the church, that it's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, that apostolic is essential because scripture itself is saying that the church of the living God, which is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, is built on the foundation of the apostles. So do you have apostolic succession handed down to you? The Catholic church and the Orthodox church are the only ones that can lay claim to this. And then in Hebrews 13, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider 
Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is well that the heart be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have benefited their adherents. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give an account. So there you already see that there in the first generation of the Christian church that there already exists an authority of the church where the Hebrew, the author of the Hebrews can say, obey your leaders and submit to them. So here, as also, we can see that there's no mention of a Bible. Instead, the author tells his readers to hold on to the spoken word, which is sacred tradition, passed on by those with authority. So then, so now we move into really why the papacy, though. So let's just go through. I want to highlight first just some text in the New Testament, both we're going to start on the epistles, then move to a scripture verse in the Gospels that points to unity, a visible unity. So in Romans uh, chapter 15, St. Paul says, Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, You are all one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, 22, it says, church is, That the church is Jesus' body. In Ephesians 4, 5, it says, One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 through 16, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied. When each part is working properly, it makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Philippians uh, 2.2, 2, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So this is St. Paul echoing and trying to fulfill and keep fulfilled Jesus's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, just before his passion. He's praying to the Father and says, As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world, and I consecrate myself for them, so that they also may be consecrated in truth. I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you have gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you loved me. And so there we see Jesus himself, right before his passion, praying to the Father that his followers, that his disciples, his Christian church would have this radical unity, perfectly united just as the Blessed Trinity is, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So not only is he asking for this mystical, we don't know where this unity lies until we get perfectly united in heaven. He asks that his church, his followers be so united now that the world may believe. 
And so that high priestly prayer of Jesus right before his passion, and that is why St. Paul echoes that same prayer is to keep this unity so that the world may believe because trust me it is a scandal to people that do not believe in jesus when they see christians even among themselves arguing and bickering and fighting and not agreeing on certain things or doctrines or teachings morals or faith that all these different things that are being taught and this is why jesus established an authority an authoritative church in order to be perfectly united as one, the same mind, be of one mind and one accord, one faith, one Lord, and one baptism, so that the world may believe. And this is not some just mystical unity, but a visible unity so that the world may believe. And this is why in uh, in uh, the last episode in that where in the Bible, you see that sola scriptura, that whole doctrine that scripture alone does not work and it does not have a good track record. It didn't have a good track record in the first century of the Christian church when St. Paul is always warning his leaders to stick to the traditions and to the teachings that he taught the Christian churches. And when you see in 2 Peter 1.20, when St. Peter tells people that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And he says later in that same uh, letter, the second Peter uh, in chapter three says, there are some things in Paul's letters hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with the other scriptures. So then Peter goes on also to warn Christians, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away with the air of lawless men and lose your own stability. So there we already see that there's problems of people taking scripture outside of the context of the church or tradition or the apostolic succession that the church was founded on. But remember back in 1 Timothy 3.15 that says the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth and Ephesians in chapter 2 when it says the church is the, uh, built upon the foundation of the apostles. You have to have apostolic succession in order to have the truth the fullness of truth that Jesus founded a church, an authoritative church founded upon Peter and the apostles. And so we've seen this problem continue, this problem of sola scriptura and dividing that unitive prayer that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Uh, and really profoundly we have seen that happen since the Protestant revolution in the 16th century when people now claim that the scripture alone is sufficient. But clearly it's not because as soon as people taught that, then they were frustrated when people were arguing about their uh, their interpretation of scripture. And so today we have 40 to 50,000 plus different Christian denominations and we're, they're all teaching different things on both major and minor matters of the faith and morals. and But all of us are claiming to follow the Bible and they're following their own traditions to the point of recreating Christianity. And it's gotten to the point now where people believe it's just me, my Bible, and Jesus. But in the Bible, in revelation of sacred scripture and sacred tradition, we know that Jesus founded a church founded upon Peter and the apostles. And this is why, and this is really more a testament and proof of why Jesus founded a church. And today, we are going to see that in Scripture. So let's just first talk about the practicality of the papacy, given that foundation we just had on the unity that we find being strived for, both from Jesus and uh, St. Paul and St. Peter. 
So, and this is actually pulled from a Protestant pastor who came into the Catholic Church who saw this problem um, in his own church. So he said, if we had really been serious about unity, we would have had to submit our doctrinal differences to a common person or a group of persons, such as a senator or council, and then aid by whatever decision resulted. I knew no one was ever going to do that. Not the Calvinists, not the Baptists, not the Lutherans, not the Pentecostals, and so on. We were all convinced of the truth of our own positions. There has to be a universal pastor if we are serious about the unity of the church. So there he is already seeing that even he was a a Calvinist uh, pastor, and he already saw that once they tried to have unity, that they were all still going to disagree with each other. So even within their own church, they had a synod or a council of a church uh, establishing, establishing doctrines or updating their beliefs every single year. And But what they were teaching was sola scriptura, scripture alone. But then that is self-refuting when you have a church and you're trying to teach on what the Bible teaches if it's uh, self-interpreting scripture. And so this Protestant pastor in his book, he actually lays out a line of logic that points to the need of a position or an office such as the papacy. And there's six points. And just really quick, we'll just go down six of them, the six of them. And the first one is Jesus desires visible unity of his church. And number two is visible unity requires ultimately one senior pastor. Number three is the job of the senior pastor is to maintain unity. Number four, he can only maintain unity by stopping fights. Number five, he can only stop fights if his word is final. Number six, his word is final only if he can make an an infallible judgment. And so just to go back up to the first one, Jesus desires visible unity of his church. So in John 17, 20 uh, through 22, it says, they all all may be one so that the world may believe. The world needs to see visible unity in order to be moved to belief. Number two, visible unity requires ultimately one senior pastor. And so we're going to get into more details of this, but this is actually a really good overview of basically the rest of this episode. So on this number two, that visible unity requires one senior pastor. Only one apostle whom Jesus names the rock says that he will build his church on and gives the keys of the kingdom, demonstrating that he has the role of the royal steward or second in command in the spiritual kingdom Jesus is establishing. There is only one apostle who is always listed first in all the lists of the apostles in the gospels. One apostle who receives a triple commission to feed and tend the sheep in John 21, just before Jesus' ascension. The word pastor literally means shepherd, and senior means chief or primary. We can say quite literally that Jesus appoints Peter as the senior pastor on the shores of Galilee after his resurrection. And then the royal steward in the Old Testament had an office and station, according to Isaiah 22:19. And the replacement of Judas by Matthias in Acts 1 also demonstrates that the apostles had an office and station. In fact, the word for Judas' apostolic office is literally episcopan in Greek, from which we get the word episcopal and ultimately the word bishop. The Roman Christians recognized his disciple Linus as Peter's replacement. Linus, in turn, was replaced by Anacletus, and so on down to Pope Francis today. And then number three is the job of the senior pastor is to maintain unity. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus tells Peter to strengthen your brothers. And at the first church council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where they are debating whether uh, Gentile Christians need to follow the laws of the Jewish uh, religion of circumcision, um, it is Peter whose speech, who 
ends the debate after Peter speaks. There's a ton of debate before Peter speaks, before uh, verse 7, and then there's none afterwards after verse 29. So as a result, after this debate that was concluded after Peter affirms the teaching of the church, the early church, they didn't split into the first church of the circumcision and or the first church of the Gentiles. Peter's ministry kept the church together. And then number four, he can only maintain unity by stopping fights. So then, therefore, Jesus must have left us with the means to do it. So obviously, good intentions and the Holy Spirit are not those means because Protestants have both of those. They have good intentions and the Holy Spirit, and they do not maintain unity. Christians have testified since the earliest fathers that one of the most important means to unity is, is the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, who is the touchstone of unity. When James, the leader of the losing party in Acts 15, rises to concede the judgment, he cites the judgment of Peter even before he even cites the witness of Scripture. So if you would read uh, Acts 15, 14, and then uh, that's the judgment of Peter that he's citing, even before he cites the witness of Scripture when he references it in the following verses 15 and 16. Number five, he can only stop fights if his word is final. Number six, his word is final only if he can make an infallible judgment. Now I want to move into a few points of clarification. So the English word papacy translates from the Latin word papatus, which derives from the Latin word papa, from which we get pope. And going back even further, the Latin term papa comes from the Greek word papis, which means father, because in a real sense, the pope is like a father to the Christian faithful. And we will see later that actually Isaiah 22 uh, 22 is prophesying this very fact. And also we see throughout the Gospels, uh, St. Paul Saint Paul refers to himself as a father to the Christian faithful, such as in 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus. And so the other titles that you hear a lot uh, regarding um, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome, Peter's successor, the Roman Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ, or the Holy Father. And so Throughout church history for 2,000 years, there was 200 and, there's been 267 popes all the way till Pope Francis today. And we were, and if you recall back in where, where did you get your Bible? There was 37 popes before we even had a canon where the Bible as we know it today, there was 37 popes before we even had that. And this is not a matter of faith. This is actually a historical fact. It is documented that we have a succession of popes all the way from uh, Peter all the way till Pope Francis today, 267 popes. And when I laid I laid out the first four earlier, when I mentioned um, uh, from after after Peter, it was Linus, and then uh, Anacletus, and then the fourth one was Clement, and he's actually mentioned in, in the letter of Philippians. So no other church can lay claim to the unique leadership with which Jesus endowed his one true church for the sake of unity and doctrine and practice, and that would be the Catholic Church. And the, this teaching authority that the church has is called the magisterium, and it comprises the Pope at its head and all the bishops in communion with him. So when I said earlier that apostolic tradition is found both in the Catholic and Orthodox Church, what the Orthodox Church is missing, they broke around the year 1000 away from uh, Rome, from the, the papacy. So they do not have a unifying figure at the, that unifies the church. 
and actually within the within the Orthodox Church, it has also seen the kind of sometimes a downfall of not having one person at the head to call a union of bishops. And we'll see, you've seen like different teachings in different parts of the world because bishops come together, but there's not a pope or a one person at the head of it. And then uh, the term, some people get freaked out by the word hierarchy. So hierarchy actually comes from two Greek words, which is higher, which means holy and archy, which means rule of or government. So therefore, the word uh, hierarchy literally means a holy government or the rule of holy men. So, and you see hierarchy in the very nature of the world and that we have, and also in, uh, from God himself, right? So you see in angels that there is a hierarchy in the, of angels. And then we also see a hierarchy in the Jewish covenant uh, that is established by God himself. We have a high priest, the Levitical priesthood, and then we have a common priesthood amongst the people, just as we have today in the Christian church. And so we already have this hierarchy everywhere. Any established group and basically the history of the entire world and just what naturally flows from any group is that there is a hierarchy naturally structured, maybe even subconsciously or unconsciously, that people, they realize the need for a hierarchy in order to maintain unity and also to move forward together including our companies, our families, our groups that we that we form. Everything has a hierarchy. Our very own country, we realize the most successful things in the entire world have a person at the top who has the one-stop authority because it is essential to unity and to maintain that unity and to go forward. So just like our presidency here in the United States, it is an office fulfilled by a succession of people just as the papacy is. And infallibility, that word infallibility means that the Pope is protected from error when he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals, and that is Catechism 891. And this does not mean that the Pope is impeccable, or which would mean incapable of sin, or inerrant, which means that he's incapable of error. Uh, and out of the 267 popes in the history of the church, 99% of them have been very holy, saintly men to look up to. And almost all of them had a regular adherence to going to celebrate the sacrament of confession because we are all sinners, including the Pope, and that he is not, incapa uh, not incapable of sin. He is very capable of sin. And actually, the 1% of popes that have been bad or have done immoral immoral or like very bad evil things they thank the lord have never taught anything infallible they did not have an authoritative teaching in the church that would undermine this uh claim of papal infallibility and the term ex cathedra is a latin phrase that means from the chair that is the chair of Peter. It refers to the binding and infallible papal teachings promulgated by the Pope when in his capacity as the universal shepherd of the church, he officially teaches a doctrine on a faith of on a matter of faith or morals and addresses it to the entire world. So Jesus, we find him endorsing this concept as it operated in the Old Testament. In uh, Matthew 23, 2 through 3, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, which actually in Greek is the cathedras, which where we get cathedral from, or ex-cathedra. 
So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. Since Jesus recognized the authority of the Old Testament teaching authority when it speaks ex cathedra with the authority of Moses, we recognize that the New Testament or the New Covenant magisterium of the church speaks, which speaks with the authority of Christ. And you can see that in Matthew 10.40, Matthew 16.18, Matthew 18.18, Luke 10.16, 2 Corinthians 5.18-20. And this authoritative church that speaks with the authority of Christ possesses a binding, infallible teaching power that is guaranteed by Christ. And you'll see that in Matthew 28.20, John 14.16, verse 26, and later in chapter 16.13 in John. So this does not mean that Catholics must agree with the mere opinions that the Pope may voice on matters. It does mean, however, that whatever the Pope authentically teaches deserves our assent. And so just to give us uh, an idea of papal infallibility in, in practice, it has been done twice in history. So not done very often. Um, and now let's. I just want to provide some, I guess, kind of like cool insights before we actually dive into specifics of Scripture. Uh, so Peter, and that is the first Pope that we're going to be talking about today. Peter, his name in the gospels are, is mentioned 195 times. The runner up of that is John mentioned 29 times. And in third place, St. James the Greater, which is around 20 times. So Peter, his primacy in the gospels alone are tremendous. They blow out every single other apostle. And then not only that, whenever the apostles are named in scripture, Peter is always at the head of the list. And then you'll note that although the order of the 12 varies somewhat on each account, Peter and his primacy is always listed first, while Judas and his disgrace is always listed last. And you can see that in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6. And also sometimes in scripture, such as in Luke 9.32, it refers to an entire group of apostles simply as Peter and those who are with him, always naming Peter the primary apostle, but not the others. Peter is the one who generally speaks for all of the apostles as a group. In Matthew 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and asks how often he should forgive his brothers if he sins against him. Note here that Peter's question here concerns forgiveness, one of the primary functions of binding and loosing, which had not yet been endowed upon the other apostles later on in Matthew 18.18. Luke also records Peter asking Jesus about a parable concerning leadership and responsibility. In Luke 12.41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? So we already see the the primacy of Peter throughout the Gospels right there. But now we're going to, let's hop over to the Gospel of Matthew. So when we actually talked about Mary, we actually kind of had a brief overview of the Gospel of Matthew because the entire focus of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom. So Jesus restored the Davidic kingdom. The Davidic kingdom had a royal steward, and you'll see back in Isaiah 22, 22, which is fulfilled by Jesus appointing Peter to that role in Matthew 16, 18. The Davidic kingdom had 12 officers over the house of Israel, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
and each one of them were named. And Jesus appointed 12 officers in Matthew 10, 1, and each one of them are named in Matthew 10, 2 through 4. And then he sends them out to the house of Israel, according to Matthew 10, 6. And later he promises them thrones, according to Matthew 19, 18, just as the Davidic princes sat on thrones back in Psalm 122, 5. So the entire Davidic kingdom, the establishment of an authoritative church and a kingdom is being fulfilled as Jesus is restoring and perfecting the, the Davidic kingdom founded uh, that he founded on Peter and the apostles that he was going to establish his church on. So even from a typological standpoint, the New Testament fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament, it would include the Davidic kingdom, which would, uh, and you see that Jesus, he gives one pope for the keys, 12 apostles for the church of the authority, which fulfills the patriarchs of Israel, the 12 patriarchs. Uh, then he sends out 72 out as fellow Christians, which reflect the Old Testament patriarchs and Moses he, when he goes out with the 72 because Jesus is fulfilling himself as the high priesthood. He also establishes a ministerial priesthood and a common priesthood, just as the Davidic kingdom all had. And that one pope for the keys is the fulfillment of the royal steward of the Davidic kingdom. So now let's dive into Matthew 16, 18. So in Matthew 16, this is uh, what happens. Simon Peter tells Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there we see quite a few in-depth things going on. So this is what uh, Jesus is setting up. He's setting up Peter is, as the royal steward of, of his Jesus's kingdom church. And this, by the way, is one of two times that the word church is used by Jesus, and both of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first of two, and we'll talk about the second one later. And so there's a few Greek words that I want to point out in this. So Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, you are Petros, meaning Peter, and on this Petra, I will build my Ecclesia. Ecclesia means church. So we see that there's two different, in the, in the original Greek of the New Testament text, it, there's Petros and Petra used, right? So when Petra is given as Simon's name, the ending is changed to the masculine Petros, thus his name is Petros. This is a little like adding the ending Y on the word rock to make the man's name rocky. And the, and the word kepha is given a Greek masculine ending with an S and appears nine times in the Bible as kephas. And so Jesus here, he was changing, and this is when Jesus changes Simon's name as well to Peter. So Jesus was changing Simon's name in order to signify the fact that he had become the rock of the church. And so that fact alone, that Jesus himself, God, the son of God himself, is changing his name from Simon to Peter is significant because throughout all revelation, when someone's name is changed, there is something significant happening on the act of God. And just so Ab Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, and, all, and just you can keep going. All of these things are very significant, right? And then additionally, on the two different Greek, t Greek words used within that line, Petros versus Petra, Jesus spoke Aramaic, however. So in the first century, him and his apostles were speaking Aramaic, which was 
uh, form of Hebrew. So in the Aramaic, when Jesus made Peter the rock of the church, the Aramaic word for rock is kepha, and kepha cannot take any ending uh, in Aramaic. So the original uh, spoken words from Jesus would have been, and I tell you, you are kepha, and on this kepha, I will build my church. So there wouldn't even have been two distinguishing words. It would have been clear that he would have said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, uh, and then also, this is the, there are only two places in the Old Testament where the word key is used, one in Judges 3.25 and one in Isaiah 22.22. So when we look for the Old Testament background of Jesus's teaching, which we should always do, it doesn't take long to find the connection between Matthew 16.19 and Isaiah 22.22. So if you back up to Isaiah 22.22, this is what's going on. So this passage is rebuking a certain man named Shebna. Shebna was the royal steward in Hebrew, the one over the house. In the ancient kingdom of David, the royal steward was second in power only to the king. He ran the king's household and he had the keys to the palace. He controlled access to the king. He could lock or unlock the palace, let you in to see the king or keep you out. Shebna had let his power go to his head. He began to think of himself as equal to the king. God sent Isaiah to Shebna with a message of rebuke. God would put Shebna out of office and replace him with a better man, Elikim, son of Hilkiah. I will, and he says, I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Well, what is Jerusalem and to the house of Judah? It's a fulfillment found in the church. And he says, I will, you, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Therefore, we have Papa, Pope. And he says, the robe, and, and, and from this entire text in Isaiah 22:22, we know that the robe and the girdle were priestly garments because the royal steward was connected with the priesthood. Elikium was of priestly descent because his father's name, Helikia, was popular within the Levitical priesthood. Second, Elikium will be a father to Jerusalem and the house of Judah. The house of Judah was a name for the entire kingdom of David. We see that the royal steward had a paternal or fatherly role for all citizens of the kingdom. So the key to the royal palace, the key of the house of David, was worn on the shoulder of the royal steward as a sign or a badge of his office. And it says, he shall open and none shall shut. And that emphasizes the royal steward's authority. No one but the king himself could oppose the steward's decisions. So God says to Shebna, I will put I will trust you from your I will thrust you from your office and cast you down from your station. So this is not a role held by one person, but the role continued perpetually, right? This is an office being fulfilled. And so the difference between binding and loosing that Jesus says versus shutting and opening is just as instructive as the parallel. In Jesus's day, the terms binding and loosing referred to the authoritative interpretation of divine law. In Jewish culture, this was and is called the Kalakic judgment. In Judaism, the Halakha refers to the way you put the law of Moses into practice. It derives from Halak, the verb to walk, and one could translate the term literally as how one walks or how one behaves. So we need to realize that the law of Moses and all law requires interpretation. For example, the law of Moses was to rest on the Sabbath day and refrain from work. But what constitutes the like what constitutes resting? 
and all of these questions are considered the uh, halakhic issues. So the Jewish rabbis eventually decided that lighting a fire was work, and that was considered a halakhic issue. They were interpreting the divine law that requires interpretation. So to bind something was to forbid it, to loose something was to permit it. So Jesus is conferring on Peter the authority to interpret divine law, which is namely scripture, and promising him that heaven will back up his judgments. And I'll get into that in a second. So Jewish scholars understand the profound authority that is being conferred on Peter in this very passage. The Jewish encyclopedia explains that the authority to bind and loose for ancient Jews and was not that the rabbis merely decided what, according to the law, was forbidden or allowed, but, they, but that they possessed and exercised the power of tying and untying a thing by the spell of their divine authority. So the encyclopedia continues to say, it says this, this power and authority received its ratification and final sanction for the celestial, which means heavenly, court of justice. In this sense, Jesus, when appointing his disciples to be his successors, used the familiar formula. By these words, he virtually invested them with the same authority as that which he founded belonged to the scribes and Pharisees. End quote. So that is directly from the Jewish Encyclopedia. And so Jesus's words to Peter in Matthew 16, 18 through 19, confer on him the role of the royal steward in his, in his, Jesus's kingdom. And they also grant Peter the authority to make decisions about how to interpret divine, divine law, particularly the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the royal of the, the role of the royal steward was both priestly and paternal. It was filled by a man who wore priestly garments, and he was recognized as a papa by all the citizens of the kingdom, not a personal charism that he died with the royal, stu with the royal steward, but it was an office or a station that was fulfilled by another when the previous occupant died or was removed. So Jesus, he's both the son of God and son of David. Therefore, his kingdom is both kingdom of God and kingdom of David. The connections of Jesus to the fulfillment of the promises to the royal house of David is actually a major theme in the New Testament generally. But to grasp it, we have to see that the church is the fulfillment of the kingdom of David. That's why Jesus promises the 12 that they will sit on thrones judging the tribes of Israel. When do they do that though? when they rule authoritatively over the church in Acts, in Acts chapter 5. The church is the Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.16. So the Catholic church is the transformed kingdom of David. The son of David, Christ the king, rules over it. On earth, the royal steward, the pope, stewards and guides it. It's, and it's both a priestly and a paternal person, a man called Papa or Pope by the citizens of the kingdom. The law, it was an ex exercise of the power of binding given to Peter and his successors. Heaven will confirm the decisions of Peter on earth, and surely this implies that heaven will first guide the decisions of Peter on earth, because heaven cannot confirm error. That implies infallibility. So even in the scriptures itself, we see that Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, meaning earthly flesh and blood, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there we see a, 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 a contrast between earthly things versus heavenly things. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. So when he says, I will build my church, that is a, a divinely led church because Jesus is God, and the powers 
powers of death shall not prevail against it. The the powers of the netherworld, right? So the the powers of uh, death will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so there we see again, heaven being uh, referred to and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So there we see another contrast of this connection between heaven and earth given to be, uh, be stewarded by Peter, the first Pope, and by all of his successors established an, an office established by Jesus Christ. And then, so that is the key text where we see that Jesus is giving keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter and his name is changed. And upon this rock, he is going to build his church, Jesus's church, and the power of hell shall not prevail against it. But also outside of that key text where we see it explicitly, we also see the primacy of Peter in other parts of scripture. So just moving through the gospel of Matthew. So if we back up to Matthew 13, he, Jesus is talking about a parable of the kingdom. In chapter 14, he is the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus doesn't let Peter fa- uh, fall into the water, right? So uh, Peter falls after being called out into the water. Okay, and but what does Jesus do? He immediately grabs him. He will not let him fail. He will not let him fall. And that is the essence of papal infallibility. Jesus will not let him fall or fail in teaching on morals and authority. In chapter 15, Jesus is telling his apostles to beware of the Pharisees. And then he talks about the chair of Moses, the cathedral where we get cathedral authority. And is a leading up, and this is all leading up to a new authority, which is finally established in on Peter in Matthew 16, 18. And there's a heaven and earth connection that we were just talking about. And then in Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John uh see the glory of Jesus and his divinity and the transfiguration when Jesus appears in glory with Moses and Elijah. Okay, so, and who is who speaks up? Peter does, of course. And then in Matthew 18, you move into when the disciples are talking about the true greatness in the kingdom of heaven, then temptations to sin, the parable of the lost sheep. And then I want to read this next part together, but it's in Matthew chapter 15 through 22. And this is, the second of two times that Jesus uses the word church. So this is what it says, starting at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for, for them by my Father in heaven. For there for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And then he says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 70 times seven. So multiple things here. So that first part, it says, Jesus tells them, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So he's talking about a visible, hierarchical, authoritative 
authoritative church. And this is these are not light matters, okay? Just before this, he was talking about it'd be better for somebody to have a millstone tied around their neck and put, thrown into uh, a body of water than to lead someone astray, okay? So this is a very serious matter of, let's say, doctrine or teaching or leading people away from the truth. And he tells us that, and back in uh, in Genesis even, that we are our brother's keepers, right? So we're told to reprove a brother who is uh, who sins or is in the wrong. And so he, he tells us, tell it to the church if he doesn't listen to to the two or three witnesses. And if he even refuses to the uh, refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then what happens next? In the very next verse, he gives the apostles also the power to bind and loose on earth. But guess what? He already did that in Matthew sixteen eighteen with Peter, the Pope, and he only gave Simon, Peter, the name change and the keys of the kingdom. So Peter alone has the keys of the kingdom, but Peter and the apostles, which ultimately is synonymous with the Pope and the union with the, uh, well, really the bishops and union with the Pope have the authority to bind and loose here on earth. So, and then right after that, we hear Peter asking Jesus, of course, he is concerned also about his function as forgiving sins, right? So that's a part of a priestly and an authoritative uh, station or office that he carries. And then if you can move to Luke 22, verse 31 through 34 with me, it reads, Jesus, this, this is right before Jesus's passion. So this is right before he's about to be handed over. He looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. He said, I tell you, Peter, the rock will not crow this day until you, th- until you three times deny that you know me. So here he says, he turns directly to Peter. And it says, and actually the Greek here, it says, Satan demanded to have you. And the you used there is more plural, like you and your, your uh, um, brothers or the apostles, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And the you and the Greek term used there is singular. He has prayed specifically for Peter. And he's, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So this is strength. Jesus is praying that the the first Pope is strengthened so that he can in turn strengthen the church. And then let's read John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19. So this is after Jesus's ascension or uh, resurrection. So Jesus is had, has now appeared to his disciples. And this is what it reads. Reads, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These are, he's referring to, are the other disciples. So he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, which means something important he's about to say. I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. So right here, we see a threefold reaffirmation to Peter, Peter specifically, because Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. He told him that uh, he was going to be strengthening his brethren. And Peter says that I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Lord. And, lo and Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times. He denies him three times right before he is condemned to death. And now Jesus is replacing that three-time denial of Peter with a three-time affirmation that uh, Peter loves Jesus. And what does Jesus tell him to do if he loves him? To feed my lambs, to tend my sheep, and again, to feed my sheep. So again, right here, just after Jesus' resurrection from the dead and just before his ascension, Jesus is reaffirming only Peter that he is the senior or the head shepherd of the steward of the kingdom of God that Jesus has founded. So the word pastor, if we remember, the word pastor literally means to shepherd. And and quite literally here, Jesus is appointing Peter as the senior pastor or shepherd when he says to feed and to tend his sheep or his lambs. And then some other points in the Gospels. In Luke 24, 34, the risen Christ first appeared to Peter. In Mark 16, 17, the angel was sent to announce the resurrection to Peter. And after Jesus' bread of life discourse in uh, John chapter 6, verse 66 to 69, it is Peter that affirms the apostles' faith in Jesus when he tells him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So this is... Peter reaffirming the faith and the apostles in Jesus after Jesus gives this extremely hard uh, and relentless teaching of the reality of Jesus truly present in the Eucharist that he is going to give his flesh to literally be eaten and all of his people le left him right here. And he turns to his, uh, his disciples, do you want to leave too? Will you also go away? And right here, Peter affirms uh, his faith and the apostles' faith in Jesus. Then we move in to after the ascension and um, Peter moving throughout the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, verse 15 through 26, Peter is heading, he headed the meeting that elected Matthias to replace Judas, and he received the first converts in Acts 2.41. In Acts 2.14 through 40, at Pentecost, it was Peter who first preached to the crowds. Acts 3.6 through 7, Peter worked the first healing in the church. Acts 5, 1 through 11, we see there that lying to and testing Peter is tantamount to lying to and testing the Holy Spirit. He excommunicated the first heretics in Acts chapter 8. And then the church under the guide of St. Peter goes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and 11. It was Peter that the revelation came that the Gentiles were to be baptized and accepted as Christians. And in Acts 15, 1-31, Peter is exercising his role as chief shepherd or senior pastor by putting an end to debate that threatened to break apart the unity of the early church by rendering an authoritative judgment about the issue under question, which we see here is an exactly an exercise of what we have been talking about this entire episode. 
that the senior pastor, this one senior pastor was going to put an end to fights and to maintain unity. And so this, uh, this is the first council of the church, the church council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that we're about to break down. And after this, there's been 21 other councils throughout the church that has gone through a similar process that we see right here in scripture. So Acts 15, we're going to, let's go through it. So this is, uh, led, this is the first church council in Jerusalem led by Peter. And this is announcing the first dogmatic decision. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 7 through 11. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood and addressed the crowds in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, listen to these words. And then he went on to announce to them authoritatively things that had never yet been written down in the pages of inspired scripture. He interpreted texts from the Old Testament in ways that no Jew had ever interpreted them. And what he said that day was to be received as God's word. In a nutshell, here's what happens. First, the elders and the apostles meet to discuss, debate, and decide the issues in verse 6 through 21. And then in verses 22 through 30, a decree is issued, a letter drafted and sent out to all the churches informing them of the council's ruling. And then thirdly, in his letter, the decision of the council this uh, is described as the decision of the Holy Spirit. In verses 27 and 28, this is literally what it says. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then it goes on to say what the decision was. So this is literally the exact, almost, you can say every single council has this exact same thing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us because the Holy Spirit was promised to the church. And so the fourth piece is the letter is received by the churches with joy. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And when they had gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. And that's verses 30, 30 through 31. In other words, the ruling of the council is accepted as authoritative and binding. It is the ruling of the Holy Spirit. None of the Christians in Antioch think to respond. Thank you very much for your guidance on this matter. We will examine the council's decision in the light of scripture and let you know our, our position. No, on the contrary, instead the Christians rejoice that the matter has been settled and now they can focus on living out the truths of their faith. So uh, here we see that, the, the so really quick, the term dogma comes from a Greek word meaning decree or decision. And it's actually used five times in the New Testament. It is used of the decree of Caesar Augustus and the ordinances of the Mosaic law. It is also used to describe the decrees of the Jerusalem council in AD 49, which is what we're talking about here in Acts 15. And later in Acts 16.4, we see that letter is being mentioned that the, that the council decided on in, back in Acts 15. And this is where actually the word dogma is used here again. And here's what it says. As St. Paul, Silas, and Timothy went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions, which is actually literally dogma, which had been reached by the apostles and elders who were at, who were at Jerusalem. So that is the Council of Jerusalem in AD 49 and Acts 15 made doctrinal decisions regarding faith and morals and they were delivered by letters to the churches. The content of the apostles' letter was dogma, something defining doctrine and practice. It was authoritative from the church council and the Holy Spirit according to Acts 15.28. From that point on, the church has used the Greek word dogma to describe a teaching which the Holy Spirit together with the apostles' bishops of the church defined as a truth that the faithful are required to believe. The magisterium of the church today has received the authority to define and explain dogmas today. So dogmas are not in, 
uh, invented doctrines. They are the interpretation and development of truth, which is contained in the original deposit of faith given to the church by Jesus and the apostles. So as we have seen today, that it is profoundly there, right in sacred scripture, pointing to a an authoritative church that has one senior pastor known as the Pope and established by Jesus Christ himself given to Peter and the apostles that were to succeed through, through the generations until Jesus's return. And so the next episode, I'm actually going to share another one really quick uh, regarding the papacy from the church fathers. I'll share a few quotes from them, but then the actual next episode will be on the church. So we're going to go over the priesthood and also the church like the bishops. And we're going to see that move through scripture and through the early church. So I pray that this was an extremely fruitful episode and that we can see that Jesus has established the papacy. This is a God-given gift for the Christian church so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that we are so radically one in faith and morals taught by the bishops in union with the Pope and we can live our lives on fire for Jesus and his church. And I'm praying for you all. God bless.